Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Boschard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Nadine Smith, Director of the Center for Public Impact. Nadine has previously worked for the Institute of Government and the Cabinet Office, and she's a specialist in public sector communication. Welcome, Nadine. It's great to have you here. It's really lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto the program. Nadine, before I ask you the obvious question of what your mission is at the Centre for Public Impact, uh, I would just like to give a quick nod to my own university. I see that you're an alumni from the University of Westminster and actually you left around about the same year as I just started working there. So do you have any <laughs> fond memories of the University of Westminster? Um, it's a really funny time of life, actually. Um, you know, I was it, when I it, that was a master's that I did at the University of Westminster in journalism at a time when I was working full time at the cabinet office. I was in a ton of debt. Um, I wanted to do this, complete this master's for purely because I felt that I needed that under my belt. It was just something I always wanted to do. But, you know, I, I don't know, looking back, whether it was absolutely necessary, but it was really good to take the time out of the full on career as a kind of 24 seven kind of news head operator in, in government to just sort of think about the world of journalism that we were working in, how it was changing, but also to practice my own practical skills in journalism because everything had gone really digital and things were changing quickly. And I really, I came away um, certainly inspired and, and much more informed about the world that we're living in today and how media and journalism plays a part in our democracy. And, um, but I think I was also looking at it from the point of view that master's was looking at it from the point of view of a, of a civil servant that was kind of in a job where we were led to believe that we could in some way control the media. Um, mm. And we can, I'm sure we can talk about that later on in, in, in the podcast. But um, yeah, it was a pretty serious kind of stage of life. So if we did cross paths and I looked moody, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but it was, a, it, was, it was a pretty stressful time of life. I think I was moody too. It's my first job. And I remember I was not happy starting my first job. I clung on to university for as long as I could. And then I had to start working. And I remember it was <laughs> yeah. I had a tough first year. Anyway, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. You mentioned you were already working at the cabinet office while you were doing your master's. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your work for the government and what you did? Um, I did spend some time in journalism um, after graduating um, in politics and French, I went straight into journalism, actually, in radio, local, local radio journalism, and, and got some really good training. And I'd worked in journalism at university, got some great Reuters training under my belt. And um, I think in my heart, I thought that was what I was always going to do. But I mean, frankly, I, I wasn't going to pay the debts off at that time. Um, I was, as I said, I'd, I'd got into quite a bit of debt at university and um, made the decision to um, try working for the civil service. Um, at the time, there was quite a strong, and we can go back to this later as well, local presence of the civil service, um, the growth of kind of regional development agencies and things like that meant that we needed to have civil service communicators and operations um, outside of London. And I began freelancing for a radio station, but also freelancing for local, for, for, for central government in the, in the local region of the southwest of England. And, um, and very quickly found there to be huge doorways opening for me to go up to London and to join at the time, which was um, a big major public inquiry um, into the crisis that was, the, was BSE. And it was all about how government communicates risk, actually. Um, and at the time of the BSE crisis, you know, I hadn't really, I was growing up in the 80s, I hadn't taken much notice of it unfolding as a crisis. But Working in an inquiry gave me a huge insight into the workings of government um, and, and the communication of risk and how government works with each other in times of crisis as well. And I think that that gave me an appetite. You think that would put you off kind of three, four years on a public inquiry um, onto some, into something as horrific as that. But I got invited then to work in the Department of Health on their public health uh, remit. And that there was a vaccines crisis at the time as well. Um, another health communication crisis and I was called in to see if I could try and use any of my insights from the BSE inquiry to help to um, deal with that and from there I didn't look back and spent 15-16 years going around various government departments working my way up and the final five years of my career as a civil servant was as I say working kind of running the 24-7 news operation at the cabinet office at the time where we had, you know, counter-terrorism was at its height and conversations, um, this was at the point where we were talking about 
al-Qaeda and going to war and it was it was a pretty intense time and I, I, I ended my career actually by doing a secondment I, I decided after I'd, I'd had a child in government and it was very it got to a point where I had to think is it really possible to have this full-on job and still raise a child and I knew I wanted to have more children um, and I, I was very lucky because the cabinet secretary at the time Gus O'Donnell, um, who I went to see and speak to about this, um, talked to me about the Institute for Government that was being set up and asked me to go and have a chat with Lord Sainsbury and Lord Bishard and to think about whether or not I could maybe go over and get a secondment and help them to get going. Um, and I didn't look back. And in the end, because the IFG is, in, is independent, um, mm -hmm. had to kind of give up my civil service job altogether and decided to stay at the Institute for Government. I'm now, and then I moved over to the Boston Consulting Group and I wanted to get a worldwide perspective on public, um, on their, on, on public sector issues. And I certainly got that working at, at BCG, an incredibly, uh, wonder, incredibly rewarding two years, um, helping to, really helping the organization to try and connect on issues that were about citizens, about well-being, um, and opening up in offices in the developing parts of the world. And they had this idea to set up the Centre for Public Impact. And it was what attracted me to BCG in the first place was the idea that they are very keen to make ideas work. And there was this idea to set up this non-profit to make it arm's length from the organisation to have really those deep conversations um, and bring people together around those issues that kind of prevent good things from happening and to learn from each other. And that was a birth of Centre for Public Impact. I'm now um, a director there. I work primarily now on the UK team. I lead that team in the UK and working on the UK specifically is quite a new thing for Centre for Public Impact. When we set up six years ago, I didn't really feel the issues we were trying to uncover around trust, better policy, um, and the role of government was particularly welcome a topic in the UK. But now with Brexit, we're back and the UK seems to want to have this conversation, which is great. Well, I think there's a, a whole range of conversations about government and trust, especially these days. I must say, your story sounds really fascinating. I kept getting flashbacks to episodes of The West Wing as you were talking through your sort of career path mm -hmm. there. Um, so <laughs> very impressive. I guess very quickly, sort of an elevator pitch style uh, uh, question and answer here. What are you trying to achieve at the Center for Public Impact? What's, what, what's the mission? What's the main goal here in the UK? Well, I think ultimately um, the Centre for Public Impact is a really optimistic organisation that sees the potential of government to do good things. Um, we also believe that most people, not all, but most people enter public service because they want to do something right for their country, for their world. And I think many times people in public service lose that purpose at some point in their career they get kind of sucked in to uh, the civil service and, and the rules of the game, so to speak. And there are many of them. And I was one of them. And I think that at CPI, we want to help people to realize their potential, the potential of government. We help governments reimagine their potential so that good things can emerge for everyone. And we know life today is complex. Um, it's difficult. There's no simple answer as much as we crave it. Um, but at CPI, we want to embrace that complexity of life today. And we want people to learn to listen and to learn and adapt to the times that we're living in so that um, complexity becomes something we can learn to love rather than worry about. Um, rather than it being the thing that gets in the way of good things happening, it can be the way we can make things work better. So we have a kind of listen, learn, adapt approach in the UK, um, and, we, and we're demonstrating that in lots of lots of different ways. I hope to to talk to you about a bit later. That's, I mean, it's really fascinating. If and if we're kind of going over our own backstories, so my first uh, job, kind of twenty years ago, when I was first starting out, a bit like friends, tried to hang around university as long as possible. But um, uh, I was then working in what was called the Centre for Market and Public Organisation at the University of Bristol. Um, and that was all about similar kind of ideas about researching the boundary between uh, the market and the state in the provision of public services. And it, sound, it just reminded me, um, when you're talking about the, the CPI, about how we do government, how we provide services for people. Um, 
and I guess CPI is looking from the kind of citizen's perspective um, to make sure that however government is done, however services provided, it's done so in a way that is best for citizens. But I, I think involving citizens, is that part of it that you kind of very much want to have more um, of that engagement between the government and the people rather than just having government do stuff to people or for people? Absolutely. You, you know, you could have written the script. It, it, it's, it's for CPI. That's exactly what we believe. Um, it's amazing, really. Um, it wasn't until I left the kind of bubble, the Westminster bubble, I suppose. I mean, I'm still in one, I, I guess, and to some extent, and I, I openly admit that. But it's amazing because we definitely see the potential of government through the eyes of what has gone before and the eyes of a few people who really don't know us at all. I mean, we're really just trying to figure out ourselves who we are. So why or how we expect other people to, to make decisions for us, particularly in times like this, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, rarely talk about the potential of government and its future and what it's here for and its role. And, you know, day after day, I tune into the morning programmes, I'm sure you do. And you often find that there might be a kind of squeezed discussion about it, about 8.58 on the Today programme, where, you know, you get the most interesting insights, you know, at that time, where we, we might delve slightly into the kind of role of government. But we have had six months of really, well, CPI has been looking at government through the eyes of citizens for six years. It's really over the last six months that we've been getting to know people again. I'm just about to release um, a paper with a charity called Changing Lives called Learning to Listen Again. And we wanted to do that because three years ago, I set about a kind of worldwide tour to listen to what people wanted from government and to understand what legitimacy meant to them in the 21st century and to really investigate, do, is there really a crisis of legitimacy? And if so, why? And what, what should we do about that? And when we heard people talking, they were emphasizing the importance of empathy, kindness, authenticity, and the ability, really importantly, to be able to participate in what happens in their lives and their communities and country and world. And those opportunities were either tokenistic, uh, badly done, um, or just not there at all. Um, and then in lockdown, we, rather than just assuming that was all still the case, we decided changing lives in ourselves to to go to those people who were the most impacted by coronavirus crisis, whose lives were already extremely tough. We're talking people recovering from drug abuse, um, sexual violence, um, ha having housing difficulties um, with, you know, unknown or, or, or awaiting immigration status decisions or custody battles. I mean, so much when coronavirus lockdown happened, so much. Um, for so many people became harder and we decided that we needed to hear from them so if you want to be part of this leveling up agenda and we are going to get your voice in the build back britain kind of uh program how can we do that in this kind of circumstance where we are literally in the middle of, a, of, of trauma and for many that trauma will continue even when we come out of lockdown so we went and we didn't just ask people how do you feel about coronavirus, how's life for you? We ask, how do you want to be heard? By whom um, and, and who? when? And, and that's who? kind of really important. That's gonna shape a lot of the work that we do going forward and shapes a lot of our thinking about what we think about power um, at the Center of Public Impact. I mean, do you think here that, I mean, I'm just thinking about my own experiences with government here. And obviously, you know, my, I've got two sets of experiences with government. I think most of us do. One, we watch the evening news and we see Boris Johnson, COVID and Brexit appear on our TV screens and something happens there. And really, we have no control over that. It's just something that plays out. And people give their opinions these days, very politicized opinions, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and the other experience that, um, that I, you and others have is probably through local government, right? And these days, that involves logging on to, well, I live in Bromley. The Bromley oh, government website. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope we're not neighbors. Or <laughs> maybe we are. Why not? I, Why would I just moved. I just That's moved. Not very nice. <laughs> no, no, I hope we are. No, because otherwise I'm a bad neighbor. I don't know you. <laughs> oh, what are you going to tell me you've done to my area? <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, so, you know, logging onto the Bromley website and requesting my recycling uh, 
voucher or this and that. And, and, and that's a kind of, well, it's not very personal these days. It's all done through the internet. But mm. th those are my experiences. So I guess my question is, are you seeking to go beyond that? I mean, I, I can't quite imagine envisage at this point in time how people can, can, can connect to government, apart from, I guess, this idea of referendums, of which we've had a couple this decade, and I'm not 100% sure whether they, that really worked out. They've not gone that well, the referendums so far, in terms of how that's, in, I don't know, I don't think they've particularly helped people feel more, I don't know, engaged or, or brought society together. But obviously, that's not the sole purpose of a referendum by any stretch. But yeah, I guess that we've had maybe we've had our fingers burnt a little bit in that sense of participatory uh, democracy. But I guess referendums are quite extreme forms of um, participation and in the democratic process. So um, maybe there's, well, I'm sure there are, uh, Nadine Katel, there's much more, um, much better ways in which we can get citizens involved in decision-making, whether it's local level or at the national level. Well, let's hope so, right? Otherwise, you know, we, 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 CPI hasn't got the optimistic vision of the future that I was talking about at the beginning. Um, you're right. I mean, the, you know, our recent experiences of, um, of experimenting with new modes of um, democracy, new methods of democracy, is, has not been particularly um, positive for many. But, you know, if you're going to ask people a yes, no question, guess what? You're going to have people say yes and you're going to get people say no. And you know, as we and you and you're you forced between having to say yes or no. But you know, as we all know, you know, many there are nuances and grey areas and lots of things in between um, that really we do get the chance to talk about. So I just think we need to stop looking to uh, the powers that be. Like, so it's the powers that be that really irritate us and frustrate us, and we feel distant from. Yet we still look to them. For answers about how to fix or mend or repair or improve our democracy which I think is is crazy in, in many respects and I don't think what I don't think people are realizing and this is something again our listening through lockdown has helped us to, to really understand is that democracy is working everywhere all the time in new and interesting and really beautiful ways we're just not hearing about it um, which is why we have to learn to listen again because I'm worried that if we kind of base our assessment on the health of our democracy on Brexit, then we are all going to just throw the towel in and say, forget it. There just really is no point being a citizen of this country participating. It doesn't get anywhere. I'm just going to, you know, quit kind of thing. Uh, um, are there yeah. any examples you can name of, of, of innovative ways that, that you think have worked? Uh, well, I mean, there is obvious, there, there's a spectrum. Um, I think at CPR, we've looked at the kind of really digitally enabled kind of state um, like Estonia, for example, and digital uh, democracy um, in South Korea and um, crowdsourcing, education policy in Reykjavik. And, you know, there's a whole, the whole example, a whole plethora of examples, you know, on the CPI website. And I don't want to plug it like that, but mm. there are lots of exciting sort of digital breakthroughs that will enhance deliberative forms of uh, democracy that we can look at but, but just what just what I want to talk about what I'm what I'm talking about right now though is the fact that in this in the height of the virus in the height of the crisis we had a very top-down government so what you were watching on the five o'clock briefings was a very top-down controlling government telling you what to do and why and having its experts with it with it what was happening however is that government was also letting go of some of the controls over localities over targets and inspections and just that easing of the control from the top which happened out of by the way necessity uh, rather than desire actually we have heard made huge differences to how people felt they wanted to participate and local level about what happens to them to their families and it impacted their desire to want to participate in the future um, in decision making about their country so feeling like you're valued by somebody at a very grassroots local level, by somebody who's got more time for you and isn't restricted by targets and inspections and therefore time restraints on speaking to you, um, meant people felt more valued and more excited at, at the prospect of being involved in conversations in the future. So I do think that we've seen different things happening and I, that's why I'm kind of very cautious about us 
thinking about the success of our democracy in the UK or based on Brexit um, and its handling of Black Lives Matter, for example, when we have seen, as I say, uh, uh, something really, really, really quite interesting emerging at the more community grassroots level. I think we've got the beginnings of something potentially. That's really interesting from just thinking from a kind of economist point of view, the targets and the league tables and the kind of the new public management of, of the new labor era. And the, you know, subsequently that was all brought in to try and capture some of the discipline of market forces to improve, you know, efficiency of public services and lower costs and just make, as you say, people go into public service to try and make people's lives better, right? There's a kind of public service mission. So it's really fascinating that actually you're finding that when those kind of targets and terror, you know, when that regime has been kind of forcibly loosened um, because of, of, of the pandemic, that's actually had a real material effect on people's lives and people's engagement and feeling of, of value when they are, I suppose people feel like we're just a number, right? We're just a number in the league table or you, I don't know if the service provider is, uh, if you feel that they're only helping you in order to fill their quota for the week or whatever it is, um, then that's quite different to having that, yeah, that, that removed and a more human relationship, I suppose, is that, uh, do you think we can take that forward, you know, as a new kind of way of doing things at the local level? I think you, you, you're spot on. Um, we, we, we are still operating under the idea that, um, the, the more that you can control outcomes and that and, and, and measurement and um, and target driven cultures can well they certainly give people a sense of control and certainly the media likes to judge success in very binary ways and um, and with the and with the use of, of, of numbers often and not through those relationships and, and how people are feeling but I do think that we, I wouldn't want us to take it for granted that government is suddenly going to go have a eureka moment and say, oh, look, I mean, we're certainly feeding in that this is happening and, and we'll continue to do so. Um, but I think there's also, you know, a, a, a danger that we wait for government to say, OK, we're going to tear up that rule book and we're going to do it this way instead. I think what we're instead seeing, and you talked about local government earlier, is a desire to begin to experiment with different ways of, of thinking about systems. And you, uh, we, we have, uh, we're very lucky at CPI to have Professor Toby Lowe, um, who is with us uh, from Northumbria. Um, he is, he has brought with him um, and, and a group of other organizations, um, this idea of the human learning system approach, um, which really is a kind of a learning environment that we're trying to create rather than measuring for success and performance and judgment we're actually we're actually learning we're measuring for learning and we're trying to understand and we're trying to co-design and co-produce together across different systems and across the silos and essentially with citizens what success feels like and if those performance measures that are put in place don't feel right as experiments go forward they can be changed and that for some people is like oh you're moving the goalposts but you have to right because if you don't um we can still hold ourselves and our, our institutions to account. But I think we all agree there's no point holding them to account for things that are really unrealistic um, or don't really particularly uh, signal success um, in the way that people want to define it. So the human learning systems approach is something really exciting for us at CPI. It does mean looking again at why, it's not that measuring is bad, it's more for what purpose are you measuring? For whom does that make life better? Who does that benefit? Who's in, who gets to say what success looks like? And if it's just a small group of people based in Whitehall, I mean, they would be the first to say, I mean, many people come out of Whitehall and say, they say exactly this, you know, how on earth was I supposed to know what um, a five-year-old with learning difficulties needs in a classroom? Um, we have to be able to trust those, our, our, our frontline workers. I think that we have a newfound respect for them. I still don't think we have a respect for citizens, though. I think that is the biggest challenge. We don't trust our citizens. 
Let me ask you exactly a question on that trust as citizen. I think you're right. I think we are trusting the experts more again than we did just a couple of years ago with Brexit. You know, we are believing what the experts tell us about COVID. We didn't believe what the experts told us about Brexit. But now let's take this down a level to the citizens. So you're talking about trust here and sort of trusting our citizens. So I'm the government, I'm at the top, you know, do I trust my citizens? I guess uh, a question I have as somebody who maybe sits at the top of government is that life is incredibly complex. Com complex. COVID is very complex. There's a lot of medical statistics, facts, knowledge underneath all of that. Brexit was ultimately very complex. There's a lot of economics, a lot of economic theories underneath this, international trade, uh, political theory, loads of things. So, but whenever we saw people being interviewed on the media about these issues, it boils down to something very simple. Oh, I don't like those Europeans. Let's go for Brexit. Oh, I don't believe COVID is real. I'm going off to my COVID party. So I guess my question here is now, obviously, these are very stylized, particular, perhaps extreme video samples. They push into the news to, to, to show a range of opinions. Uh, and I'm sure not. I'm sure most of us are not like that. But still, life is complicated. How can we trust the average person with the complexity of some of the policy decisions. I mean, I hardly trust myself outside my specific remit that is labor economics. And I, I'm, I'm, I have a PhD and I'm a professor and I think I know quite a bit about it. There's a couple of things I want to talk about here. I think in, in just listening to your, to your question, I think first is about experts. Um, I think that we, all, we often hear that people are sick of hearing, you know, you know experts, but I don't think so. I think we're just sick of hearing people pretend to be experts in everything. And just as you said, and, and that's what was what you it's what you it's what you said, Franz, that, that triggered this in me was you recognise you are not an expert in everything. Yet if you're going to go on to BBC News, you will get asked about anything and everything about your subject. And maybe you wouldn't even get asked about your your specialist subject. You'll get asked <laughs> that, about that, that has occurred. Yes. <laughs> and similarly for ministers, you know, they are they are expected to be able to answer all questions on all things. And there is a very, um, and I think that you know, over the years we have become tired of not just experts, but people kind of putting themselves up as experts in everything. And what we really know is that the world is more complicated. We know the world is more complicated. Um, but I think, and I think, again, this is back to the optimism of CPI and, uh, and our work around complexity. Human beings are actually amazing at dealing with complexity because each of our lives is filled with it. As you said, we know it. And there's uncertainty every day. And coronavirus has demonstrated complexity in all its forms and beauty. And yet we are still trying to find a top-down, one-answer approach from the top of government, when really, I think we've, what we're hearing is there are two kind of schools of thought. One is government needs to get a grip, be simple with its messages, and for goodness sake, just tell us what to do in a way that we can understand and we know why. And then there's another sort of side, which is you can't put a blanket approach on a whole country. This is complex. There are nuances. We have human rights. Um, can we at least devolve some of these conversations to to regions and localities and get mayors working together and take a kind of common sense approach understanding there is not one answer that suits everybody in a situation like this and i think human beings are quite good at dealing with that um, i mean for example if the government wants to promote well-being it can't create a well-being policy that says right nadine if you want to um for your well-being you need to go on long walks but for my well-being, I need to be with my friends and I need to have regular dinner parties and feel I've got people around me, but you, friends, might want to go for long walks. What we need is a, is, a, is a bespoke approach that is enabled by government, where government acts as the enabler, creates the right conditions for us to come up with the answers, but does so in a kind of, doesn't lose that togetherness as a nation. We all know what we're trying to do, but we recognise that we have individual ways of doing it. And I think that can be applied I, I think I get annoyed when, when there's a sort of a worry that perhaps people just aren't bright enough to deal with the complexity of, 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 of challenges of our country. I don't believe that. I think people are crying out for more discussion, debate and, and facts around Brexit. We didn't get that. I think that's a lesson that we can learn. So I think one of the key factors for governments to respond to this kind of complexity is to devolve more. Um, so that we can get those bespoke uh, responses we need, deliberate more in our towns and cities. This is happening in places like Dudley and Wigan and Newcastle. 
Um, and I think that let's try and elevate those examples and talk about them more and demonstrate, look, people aren't silly. They, they aren't incapable. They can embrace complexity, but not when you get involved, because <laughs> then you just make it worse. We can, um, and so let's just, let's just try and learn from these kind of new approaches and, and start to trust people. And if you don't want to trust them with whole blanket policy conversations, then start with something local and build up our experience as a country and, and as, as citizens of, of learning to do this. Because this coronavirus has demonstrated that new models of public management doesn't work for highly complex, unpredictable environments such as this. I guess it's a, a little bit like, um when people get called at random for jury duty, right? So you go there and you get 12 people selected at random and they have to look through often very complex and, you know, there's no uh, kind of education test to be able to go and sit on the jury. It's like, you know, the complex problems and this is, you know, it can be deciding not quite life and death, but, you know, in some cases whether people are going to prison for the rest of their life. So I suppose there are precedents for situations in which, the public uh, in general are involved in very complex um, decision-making processes. Um, and I guess, so one example, I don't know if you know about the Newham Commission on Democracy and C Civic Participation that recently yes. was looking at exactly the ways in which democracy and participation can be strengthened um, in that particular borough of London, which incidentally has been one of the worst hit by um, COVID. Um, and they have recommended that you have this kind of permanent deliberative assembly of local residents, again, chosen just at random uh, to kind of discuss uh, and think about these uh, local issues. I guess, I mean, that sounds like, you know, that's something that you would be uh, very much in favour of. And it does sound like a really good idea. I guess, is there, is there a slight tension? The, the worry always is, I think, that you get these kind of more decentralised bodies making different policies the media love a story about a postcode lottery, right? And so you get, you know, if you get that kind of more localized decision-making, that is then inevitably gonna to lead to having different policies and different, um, I guess, different things available to different people in different areas. And so, you know, you can imagine you're gonna get the story where, you know, we're here in this street, but if you go two streets down there, then you have to wait an extra, you know, two months to get an appointment to see a specialist for this or that. Um, you know, do we need a kind of, uh, I don't know, a re-education about this? Um, or, yeah, how is there a practical way we can go to bring in more local uh, control and devolved decision-making that doesn't run into these problems of just inequality? I think that the postcode lottery discussion is, is, is a little bit of a red herring because, I mean, we have a terrible postcode lottery now, and inequalities are and and, and um, inequalities are, are looking worse than ever, and um, we're, we're stifling innovation. We don't trust our citizens. The top-down approaches don't work, um, and then we blame people for not being able to come up with answers um, in a, any part of government as well. So I, I can't. What I'm worried about is that you know, with the with this whole idea of the postcode lottery fear, is we kind of. As soon as one part of the country experiments with a different way of thinking about policy or decision making and wants to make a decision, everyone else doesn't ask, is that good? How they did that? Can we learn from that? They say, oh, no, you know, you're going to be different to us. So that makes you potentially better. So isn't this just a race to the bottom then? Uh, we're currently pursuing a program of race to the bottom by being continuously in fear of postcode lottery. I think that we should have some national values, principles. Um, I think that we should have a national conversation about the kind of country you want to be and what we believe is success and, and really begin to revisit our values as a country. And I, I don't, I think, so I think that is important, but I don't think that we can, and we can certainly give people options for how to achieve our shared goals, if you like, as a country. But I think when it comes to prescribing them and then holding people to account for delivering things that might not be right for a local area is really dangerous and actually exacerbates this inequality because you're giving, imagine if I'm constantly prescribing to you, Matt, a dinner party when you hate 
dinner parties, but I have to get you to a dinner party and you have to agree to go to one so I can tick a box. That then it makes you feel worse. Um, then your mental health starts to deteriorate. And guess what? We now have a whole load of people for whom policy isn't working. And that we say, well, that doesn't know. Well, at least we don't have a postcode lottery. I mean, it's just it's crazy to me. And I think that the idea of assemblies is, is one interesting way we can um, enhance local engagement, for sure. Um, I think that it's great that there are these experiments. I, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the new experiment, but I do. A member of our team actually has interviewed somebody who ran the recent climate assembly in Newham. And there's certainly some really interesting elements to it. But I think in this case and almost all others, the communication, we spend a lot of time arguing about how to improve the internal design of the assemblies and forums. Um, and, you know, and, and, and whether assemblies should have a binding decision or not, and whether that's eroding what we believe to be, you know, democracy um, and all that. But I actually think that it's, this is understandable. That there's fears around that and people and decision makers ignoring or cherry picking the results and democracy washing. But I do think that um, the communication of the fact that they're taking place, what they're learning, how we can improve it is neglected. And the reason why is because we are too reliant on a small group of leaders at the top of government and recognize it, notice it and talk about it. But they're not going to. It's not necessarily in their interests for there to be a massive power sharing devolved um, agenda like this. And that is why I'm excited by the idea that people are just getting on and doing it anyway. And, you know, we know Whitehall loves evidence and I'm sure that it's, we can keep experimenting locally. We can build that evidence, learn from, from doing, learn, learning by doing. And over time, central government will realize that this is a sensible um, and uh, more positive way forward that can deliver the outcomes for citizens. Um, so that, that, that would be my view there on both postcode lottery and, and assemblies. I agree with Matt and you about the citizens assembly at the local level. I think, I think to me that sounds like, just like Matt was bringing up the examples with uh, civic duty and you know going to court and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it is important that people feed into complex debates and arguments at their local level. But now let me, let me bring out something that's a bit controversial. I didn't think about this at all before the interview, but I just want to throw it in here and see, see what the response is. I can't say ultimately that I support this, but as an academic, it did have me thinking. And that's something this ex-Australian prime minister said the other day about Australia, where he said, listen, at some point we have to ask ourselves the value for money question. What is the value of money on a life, right? And we're spending a lot of money on all this COVID lockdowns and COVID support and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, can we afford it? it does, does there come a point when you, should, when you should just say, you know, let X, Y, and Z die? Uh, obviously, that, that didn't go down well in, in the media uh, in the current situation, um, nor should it, I guess. But there is an, uh, the example why I'm quoting here is because some policy decisions are very, very serious. You know, are we going to go to war? Are we going to, I don't know, build a dam there or do this there? You know, very serious uh, decisions that not just affect people's lives, but may actually end up killing them prematurely. Uh, but these decisions do have to be made and they're quite difficult decisions to be made and somebody has to make them. And I think if we all sit down around together and debate this, we'll never be able to make these kind of decisions. And if somebody just makes them for us, then our discontent with that decision is really you know, that's just the way the system works. And, and half the society will be for it, the other half against it. But that's just our reaction to a very important decision that had to be taken one way or the other way. So what's, what's your feeling about that kind of stuff? I'm not sure I completely follow because, I mean, are we saying that there are some things that are just so big and so complicated and a matter of life and death that ultimately... You somebody, need one person to... You need one person to make a decision. Exactly. God? I well, mean, like, who, who what's do we, the closest who do we, we have to God? What is, exactly. well, um, it's not Boris Johnson. It's not Boris Johnson, let's be sure of that. <laughs> he probably thinks who, it is. And who, and who is this one person? The prime minister isn't one person because we don't have a prime, we don't have a presidential system in our, in our country. Um, we have a cabinet of level of government. We have cabinet mm. government um, who I do think in many respects, people at the height of the crisis at the beginning did turn to and trusted to make the important decisions for the country. And I do think that still exists 
in in that form. And I actually think people were extremely compliant and very happy for government to make those choices. What they didn't like was a discussion about their the fact that you know some people are just going to have to die. We'll develop some sort of kind of herd immunity. There was that narrative that was developing around herd immunity, which scared everybody, panicked everybody, wasn't clear. Is that just, is, is that science or is that policy or is that advice or is that, what is this? And I think that, you know, that is where I think we, we stop trust. We stop saying, let one person or group of people uh, decide. You could get a kind of cabinet, a war cabinet kind of situation. Um, you could have a cross government collaborative approach. And I know that particularly around Brexit, for example, a lot of the criticism of Theresa May was that she didn't collaborate across party early enough. And people were in many ways happy for those discussions to happen at a very high level if they were seen to be inclusive and collaborative and all parties were involved. That didn't happen. So I think that there's, I think that people's expectations of government are not massively high. I think that they do want government to make decisions when they need to. They want them to do them with information, with the right advice. They want them to be clear. They want them to be collaborative. They want them to work cross-party. If not, and they want to empower regions and city mayors, for example, to be able to, uh, to carry out and also influence what happens next. I think that's a pretty reasonable ask from citizens of our country. That doesn't seem to be happening even, even at its basic level. But I don't think it's helpful to put price tags on lives or start to talk about the value of a life we as individuals are currently figuring out what our attitude to our lives and risk around us is let us make those decisions and let us let us figure out through learning um, sometimes the hard way of course but we will under we understand our our, our duty um, as citizens to our country we know this is a big risk but i think that what people don't want we absolutely don't want one person making a decision about how valuable their own life is and i and i do think that trust has massively deteriorated in government through this coronavirus I've, we've heard it we've seen it but where there is trust more is absolutely with those people who hold the relationships locally um, and it doesn't matter if one person makes a decision up at the top of government it won't happen if it can't be implemented um, then, isn't, then what is a decision if, if, if it can't be enacted? There is absolutely no point in it. So yes, give, give, a, give a small group of people the decision-making powers and they have been trying to make decisions and guess what? People are saying, no, thank you. Um, and that is where we go back to square one again. And do you think, it's really interesting you say that you know, people want deliberation and we have this kind of cabinet responsibility. We don't have a presidential style, but I wonder what you think about, I know it feels a bit like recent moves in government have been more to try and make things a bit more presidential style. We've got, you know, Boris Johnson famously, you know, making every one of the candidates for the election last year sign up to his, his deal. Um, he was getting rid of people from the party who didn't sign up to it. So that idea of, you know, Theresa May was criticised for not embracing a cross party in the Brexit discussions or with the devolved nations. Boris Johnson's not even deliberating within party, right? And there's very much moved to this kind of right we make the decisions and whether it's him or, you know, obviously there's also a lot of talk about that actually it's Dominic Cummings, completely unelected, completely unaccountable, making decisions. And I think, you know, I'm very much with you in the sense of we want to have more deliberation, we want to have more involvement, but there does seem to be a, a strand of thought that actually what people want, and, and this is what Boris Johnson seems to be taking his government in this way where cabinet is very strictly whipped to you know the party line there doesn't seem to be any dissenting voices and it seems to be responding almost to this idea that okay well what people want is a strong man like you see with trump like you see with putin erdogan you know there's an idea i think that people want a strong leader who just makes these decisions which is kind of completely counter to what you're finding on the ground and what I, you know, in my experience, what I think people want from a democracy. Um, so it's just interesting that at the time when you've, you're picking up this very much a kind of local level of, yeah, we want this engagement, we want participation. And the government at the top seems to be going completely down a different route of actually, we are going to almost be act like a president. And we're just going to take decisions. We're not deliberating with cabinet. We're just very strictly enforcing our own decisions and our own direction. 
So, I'd, uh, yeah, what do yeah. you... I think that's really interesting. I think that, you know, we've, talk, we've thought a lot about power um, at CPI in the last few years. And I think that some you know, we've never really understood in government, have we, where it is right that government takes that kind of top-down, we will decide, you need a strong man um, to, to just, you know... Be, be a dad and just say right you know I've heard all of you lot squabbling I'm just going to make a decision and and I do agree that there are times when we need that kind of leadership I'm not sure that but there are times when we really don't and I just don't believe that government has had a moment to think about what type of power lever to pull at what time it's just a kind of one-size-fits-all power story whatever the situation no matter where what happens and i think we need to have a discussion about what power suits at what stage of crisis so we've got a way of thinking about it at the center of public impact so it was very top, top down in a fight stage when you are when you want to when you're fighting for your national identity or you don't want to feel like you're being bullied by the world governments etc yeah you want a strong no nonsense tell it how it is not afraid leader but then as you go into more of the kind of stage where you're trying to get used to a new normal as we are, um, you can start to let that go a bit and start to run different experiments of sharing power in different pockets where you clearly are having no success. Now, we know government is having very little success reaching what they would call, and I hate the term, hard to reach communities in the UK over coronavirus safety messages. And, they, and, and the one way that they think that they might be able to get that resolved is by getting doctors to speak to people on their doorstep, going to where people are and listening and talking to them, which you think I'd say absolutely is the right thing to do. But actually, our listening has shown that actually any kind of conversation with anyone associated with government, even if they're wearing a doctor's coat, um, would scare them to death. You know, people, anyone knocking on your door right now that you don't know would worry you. You don't want that person because you, in, at, you're in your face asking if you know about coronavirus messages because you're worried they're actually checking up on you, whether you've got too many people living in your home, your immigration status, whether you're looking after your children properly, etc. So there, there, there is about at that point during recovery, you've got to share power. And then as we go into build, building Britain back better, um, we, should, we can, if we've started to do those experiments, begin to rebuild different institutions and ways of thinking about which power is right for what moment in our story as, as we go. And we've just never done that. And we've got this at CPR, we've got a kind of a map, if you like, of how you do power sharing at different stages and why. And but across whether, whether you're in a fight stage, a recovery stage or a, or a rebuild stage, subsidiarity matters, relationships matter and your ability to redefine governance matters and there's lots of different ways of doing that and we can learn across the world why but every after the economic crisis 2007 in which ways we still are in um, and um, through coronavirus all of our research at CPI demonstrates that where you have enabling governments with good local coordinators and connections and a trust from your citizens you have got out of this crisis better and we simply don't have the building blocks for that. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about Estonia earlier. That's a classic example of having oh. the confidence and the trust and the building blocks to be able to, to fight the virus differently to, to, to the UK. Let me ask you sort of the final question because we're running out of time for the program. This is a question we ask uh, all participants. Uh, we just talked about, you know, presidential style power. You mentioned some uh, solutions going forward. Let's make you uh in charge let's put you in charge of reforming uk government's governance for a day or two uh we all agree public institutions need to listen they need to learn they need to be compassionate but if we put you in charge for a bit what are you going to do to change things and make them better this is so interesting well obviously if i was in charge i would make all the decisions on my own <laughs> <laughs> no, that was my bad attempt at a joke um i think that at the moment i think i if i was to, if i was in charge now i think the most important thing is i would spend less time worrying about the um my ability to control all of the outcomes at the front line and start to immediately those letting go of the regulation and inspection and target driven culture 
around people's individual health outcomes, I would take a very big look at and, um, and want to let that go a little bit further to enable people's relationships to, to in, improve and to start to try and build people's confidence up in their own ability to be able to manage this virus and, and be uh, a, a member, an active member of, of their community. So I would, I would absolutely do that. I would also take a long look at Whitehall and I'm, I've been fascinated with Michael Gove's speech, the Ditchley speech as they call it, which was really kind of like the sort of setting out of the kind of vision for the future of, of Whitehall which definitely was right in its diagnosis about Whitehall being too closed and being like a bubble, not having enough expertise, if you like, at the centre for the times that we're living in. But I would also work very, very hard at getting those voices in now. I mean, I'll give you an example. When it came to how do we know whether to open barbers or nail bars, you know, I think the fact that, you know, a lot of the services that were designed for women are designed for women, eyebrow threading, et cetera, those decisions came very late. I think because there's a lack of representation of some of, of women and everyday people at the decision making table. I mean, I would def I, I don't know if anyone would even know what those kind of treatments are you know, at the centre of government. So I would definitely want to find a way um, of doing some listening and learning exercises and bringing voices in um, and not having um, diff like one person represent a whole community. But bring, but make the best use of all of those mechanisms and and charities that are working out there that know the answers, and bring them in for a conversation that can build a better way forward in the future. And work very hard at my inclusion and diversity strategy because I don't. I think one of the reasons that we've been cited, it's been cited to us that people don't trust government, is because they simply don't speak our language. Most of what is coming out of government is so the last thing i do is maybe as the communications person in me is take a very hard long look at my language a lot of what people are saying makes zero sense out there i mean even the term bubble one person said to her who made that up like what is a bubble you know and to us we think oh that makes sense it doesn't to many people so we cut the jargon um bring people in look at our inclusion um policy reassess all of our performance and measuring targets and inspections start to let go and begin these experiments that as I said in listening learning and adapting and building the institutions that will make us yeah that one nation that Boris Johnson talked about. Nadine Smith that was a very thoughtful answer thank you very much for that <laughs> I think Matt and I agree with large portions of that uh, very good point about the nail bars. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. So, yes. Do you know what eyebrow threading is? <laughs> I do not know, but clearly yeah. somebody needs to uh, know in government. <laughs> I've somebody. heard of it, but I don't quite get it. It sounded very quite painful, and I don't quite know no, how it works. Very, but no, it's very, it's very effective. But you know, it's interesting. It, it, um, these little narratives that play out. The last kind of thing to talk about is eyebrow threading. Say a lot about the government that you are and who you have, who you have in it, and. Um, I think these little, these little signals made a big difference in lockdown to people's perceptions of who government was and who they act for. And I know we joke about the nail bar eyebrow threading thing, but I think it is a really important kind of anecdote actually to take with us out of this programme. Perfect. Absolutely. Thanks Nadine, that's been really interesting and thought provoking conversation. Thank you both very much for having me. Do follow me on Twitter at Nadine MC Smith or CPI underscore foundation for lots more uh, chatter and discussion and examples of uh, government being more effective and legitimate. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Porsche. And we'll be back with more soon.